0: This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, and Chris. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Maude Marin. Maude is a lawyer, a mother of four, and a congressional candidate for New York's 12th district. During our conversation, Maud talks about her career as an attorney at the Legal Aid Society, her work providing legal services to poor Americans, how her views in favor of colorblindness and specialized admissions tests and against race essentialism in education resulted in her being publicly labeled a racist by members of the Black Attorneys of Legal Aid Caucus and attorneys of color at Legal Aid. Her lawsuit against the Legal Aid Society in which she claimed she was forced out of her job and discriminated against on the basis of race, Barry Weiss's article detailing her story, and how American culture might recommit itself to its core principles of freedom of speech, tolerating disagreement while coexisting amicably, resisting ideology, and creeping totalitarianism. I have wanted to talk to Maud for well over half of a year, She's the first person on this show who has been personally canceled by way of fantastic lies and gross misrepresentation. She has shouldered those consequences and moved forward, refusing to shut up or apologize for having her own point of view. She is a model of how we might all want to behave if we are wrongly libeled or slandered with our reputation and livelihood on the line. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Maude Marin. Marin all right, Mod. I know we have been working on scheduling this conversation for many, many months. It's really great to meet you. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on.
1: Thank you so much. It's fantastic to meet you.
0: You as well. Um, there's a lot I want to cover in the conversation today, and I think the first thing that might be important for me to note about it is that on this show we've done a couple. I've done a couple of episodes about um, wokeism and you know which which trials that seem to be happening in our culture, McCarthyism. uh, The article that Barry Barry Weiss wrote about you, uh, it was noted as creeping totalitarianism. Those are subjects I've covered on the show, but I've never actually talked to somebody directly who has um, suffered at the hands of that kind of uh, change in America. And so I want to give ample time to allow you to tell your story in detail and I think it might be helpful just to start at maybe the beginning of your career. We're going to talk a lot about the Legal Aid Society in general, but that's an organization that, as I read into it, has a very noble mission. And it's one that you have dedicated a huge chunk of your career to working for. How did you learn about the Legal Aid Society and how did you begin to get involved in the first place?
1: Oh, my goodness. Um, That is really starting way back. (laughs) Yeah beginning. Um, I interned at the Legal Aid Society when I was in law school. And just FYI, the, the Legal Aid Society is New York City's largest public defender agency. Um, and public defenders, in for those who don't know, um, represent people accused of crimes that can't um, afford a private defense attorney. Um, we have a constitutional right to have a defense lawyer when you're accused of of, of a crime. Um, you don't have a constitutional right, for instance, to have a lawyer in, in civil court or in housing court or another. But when you're accused of a crime and your liberty is at stake, you have a, a constitutional right to an attorney. Um, so even people who can't afford an attorney, if you're homeless, if you're mentally ill, if you have any sorts of problems, you get an attorney. In, in New York City, you often get a legal aid attorney. Um, I interned there in law school. I went to work at the Legal Aid Society right after law school. I worked, I've worked in both the Manhattan and the Bronx borough offices in the criminal defense division. I have worked as a staff attorney there. I have worked as the director of training, training new incoming lawyers straight out of law school about how to be um, a public defender. And I will say, um, although I am currently um, (laughs) in in a lawsuit with the Legal Aid Society, um, it's an awesome job. It's a great job. And I loved doing my job there for many, many years Um, on and off for two decades. I worked there. I took time off when my kids were born. I have four children um, and they actually factor into this story because they are New York City public school children. And when my kids were in school, I got very involved in um, uh, basically education advocacy. And it was that Um, those education positions and education advocacy positions that I was um, championing and uh, working towards that created the rift between myself and my employer.
0: Yeah. Uh, And I want to get into that story specifically. But initially, what was the appeal for you in the first place to get involved in something like this? I mean, I know you're a lawyer. Going to law school is expensive. Living in New York City is expensive. Um, Why did you want to work there in the first place?
1: You know, helping people um, is—it's like a privilege and a joy. It's um, there's a lot of different ways to practice law, and I wasn't really interested in corporate law and trusts and estates and 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 sort of the the stuff that wasn't to my liking. Um, Criminal law was pretty fascinating, and both uh, the legal part, the sort of legal theory part of criminal law is very interesting, but also the day to day of having clients and helping people, people who are often at a really terrible part in their life. They're in jail or they're, you know, um, they're facing criminal charges. Um, You're meeting people when they really need an advocate and they need someone to be on their side and they need somebody to fight for them. And, um, you know, I liked every aspect of that.
0: Yeah, part of them. And I also want to give some context as to who the people are who tend to need the assistance of the Legal Aid Society. Um, I would imagine people who've already heard the description you've given about the organization can guess, but who tend to be the individuals in New York that rely on these services in the first place?
1: And I mean, there's a there's a whole gamut, but obviously, um, you know, it's a means tested uh, eligibility. So if you're rich, <laughs> you don't get a legal aid lawyer. You have to yeah. go find a lawyer. Um, crime tends to be a young person's game a little bit. So you tend to have um, not exclusively, but um, you tend to have uh, people who are younger. And there's certainly um you know, lots of young Black and Hispanic men go through the criminal justice system um, at rates greater than other groups uh, in terms of, you know, gender and age uh, uh, demographics.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine, given that you spent so many years working with them, you know, your your heart must go out to people like that who are in a situation like that. And I would love to get your thoughts on why you think it's important that people of that description are given. You've already mentioned that there's a constitutional right. But just personally, why is it important to you to represent those people and help them?
1: Um. Well, you know, it's funny. I was just having lunch with somebody and we were talking about um, the stop and frisk program under, Bill, under Bloomberg, our former yeah. mayor, and under Bill de Blasio. And so, you know, in addition to individual human beings who you meet and who sometimes you care, you know, I yep. care about me and my clients very personally. You work with some clients for years, actually. But you see, um, when I first started working at the Legal Aid Society, it was in the late 90s. And it was before a lot of um, changes and reforms happened. So the stop and frisk program, which was ultimately found to be unconstitutional the way it worked in New York city um, was in um, was at its height, right? So being a young black or Hispanic man in New York could meant being almost indiscriminately stopped and searched, um, you know, basically because of where you lived and what you look like. Um, We had, for many, many years, for decades in New York, drug laws called the Rockefeller Drug Laws, which um, were draconian. That's mm-hmm. the word that everyone uses. And it's a it's the right word, right? People, first time, um, uh, you know, arrestees, people could wind up facing three to life or 15 to life in jail, um, for a first time drug offense. And I mean, there are, we have drug laws for a reason. I'm not, um, a complete abolitionist when it comes to, um, you know, we see, we see the excesses in both ways, right? Like the, the locking up so many people for such long sentences for, did not solve, it didn't make drugs go away or didn't make, Drug sales go away in New York City, but it ruined a lot of lives, um, which doesn't, for me, doesn't translate to the idea of having no laws or criminalizing yep. or everything. So I'm living in a New York City right now where I think the pendulum maybe has swung the wrong way or too far in the other direction. But I think the changes that we saw to um, ending the stop and frisk program as it existed um, when Bill de Blasio came into office and reforming the Rockefeller drug laws so that we could have more humane drug laws, those were good changes. There yeah. were there were changes in the right direction. Um, some of the current changes to law that we've had, I actually disagree with. But the fact of the matter is, I represented teenagers who were going to prison for really long sentences sometimes. And when you see the human cost of um, of laws that are not, you know, that are not right, that are really deeply unjust in some ways. And also I'll say there's a lot of talk in New York right now about bail reform. um, And it's very frustrating because the impulse for bail reform in New York comes from a good place, I think, right? The idea that access to justice shouldn't be based on how wealthy you are, right? Like you should have a justice system where a poor person or a rich person or a middle-class person can um, be treated the same. And bail reform was born out of the idea that access to justice shouldn't go to only those with deep pockets. Um, But some of but because the laws were so bad for so long in the other direction, I think there's been an overcorrection and we're seeing it right now in New York City in um, in some of the you know, the things that have gone wrong in the last few years, it's like an overcorrection. That's a whole nother story separate from my story, but that's just my political commentary that, um, that the pendulum swings both ways and it had swung to it. When I started working at the legal aid society, um, you know, people were being penalized with really sort of horrifically long sentences for nonviolent crimes. um, And it, You know, it was awful to see. So I very much supported changing the laws to make things more fair and more reasonable. Some of the most recent changes have probably been, um, for me, it's like the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up politics because, uh, you know, what we're going to talk about today is deeply linked to politics and the zeitgeist of politics in America right now and your own personal political views. Um, I, I know you're running for Congress right now. Yes. The I would love for the listeners to know a little bit about your you know historic political views. Um, in my research for this conversation, I mean, I you were a donor to Bernie Sanders. You've been a lifelong Democrat. Um, speak to that. Talk about what you know in your life has mattered politically and why in your life you have aligned yourself with the the Democratic Party and the and just the political beliefs in general that you do.
1: Yeah. I mean, the I've registered to vote when I turned 18. I registered as a Democrat. I've been a Democrat ever since. And probably the easiest and simplest way, way for me to, to know why I chose to be a Democrat is my understanding of the Democratic Party um, was and has been up until very recently, <laughs> because I think we've maybe gone off track a little bit, but was and has been um looking out for the working man, looking out for um, the everyday American. And we weren't the party of um, the oligarchs of the, um, you know, the the vested insider interest. Um, And, you know, it was the party of of the labor movement. It was the party of working everyday American people. Um, At least that's what The Democratic Party has been traditionally, I think we could put a question mark near that right now with some of the things we see coming out of DC. Um, But, you know, to me, that's really important. A thriving middle class in America is really essential to a successful America.
0: Yeah. I want to get into the specifics of what happened at Legal Aid. um, Because I think for a lot of people, as we've kind of already alluded to in this conversation, who are aware that there are popular phrases in American culture right now related to wokeism. Um, They might know roughly speaking what that means, but I'd love for you to begin to talk about what you started to notice at legal aid. And I think it was also, if I remember correctly from your biography, it was really in the education system Mm -hmm. at first that was causing your own objections. What did you see that started to uh, raise your eyebrows and was being int- introduced to to kids? You, you said already that you, you're the mother of four that you thought was you know wrong and unethical.
1: Um, well, I'll say this: my I wound up running for my school board, which is in in New York City. is called a Community Education Council for kind of the same reasons that lots of moms and dads like all over the country do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like you were, they were building a new school in in where we live, a new middle school. My kids were in all my kids were in elementary school at the time, my three eldest. And um my my youngest hadn't even been born yet. And um you know I started going to a few meetings and started paying attention and I went to a few of these school boards and was like, what's this about? <laughs> like <laughs> happening here um you know cuz i grew up in pennsylvania i didn't grow i was born in new york city but i didn't grow up here um so i hadn't gone to new york city public school so i was learning about it as we went along my husband's not from this country so he hadn't you know didn't have experience with this school system either and um i wound up running for my school board and got on the school board. And I, in the simplest terms, um, there was sort of a divide among parents and the divide was sort of, I'll say um, pro academics versus equity (laughs) and equity, you know, dictionary definition of equity, meaning fairness is who's, who's not for fairness and equity, right? It sounds good. Um, but the, but equity became code word in New York City for education policies that were really intent on tearing down academically strong programs and schools and tearing down merit-based admissions. Meaning if you had to take a test or have your grades measured in any way to get into a school or a program, that was considered bad because it was not equitable, because it was racist, because it was, you know, uh, something that the, the super woke left didn't like. This is, I am summarizing this in very yep. simplistic terms. This, If you had been going to school board meetings in 2018, 2019, the, like so many things that we now see on Zoom, these things raged on for hours on end with parents yelling at each other and carrying on and having endlessly detailed conversations. But the real thick of it, like the real basic part of it came down to, do you want to get rid of every honors program in a school and every advanced math program in the name of equity? Or do you want to support strong academic programs for public school students and recognize that there are racial gaps and help all kids of all colors do better so that we can close some of those gaps by providing opportunities to everybody? And I very much fall into that latter category.
0: Yeah. And I I think once you begin to delve into the details of what is going on in that situation, right? My understanding is that you know if you ever have large groups of people in the thousands or tens of thousands, there expectedly will be differences in outcomes based on whatever group you break break them down by. Right. What was the primary objection for the people who were pro equity? right? I mean it, it, it tends to be in my reading of the literature often Asian Americans that come out on top in a lot of these, um, SAT scores and testing into merit-based schools. What was their, what do you, where were they coming from, right? To give them the benefit of the doubt, why would they have this objection to ripping down traditional, what really are standards in American schools? What, what's the genesis of that? Where does that come from?
1: Well, I'll tell you what's funny is that we were having these um, battles, school board battles, and and it was in the papers. And there were all these um, political battles because our mayor was very involved in making some of these proposals to get rid of merit based programs in New York City. But we weren't alone. The same exact um, battles really uh, to a T were happening in Boston and in San Francisco and in, in, in Virginia. And um at schools that were merit based schools and that were very successful, and that overwhelmingly <laughs> tended to be um Asian more Asian than white in many instances in terms of the kids who are testing into them, I mean in New York City, Asian kids make up somewhere around fifteen percent of the public school population, and in some of the most successful high schools, they were well over fifty percent of the kids who were testing into those high schools and It's worth pointing out that um you know, the schools often fixated on the racial makeup of the schools, but the socioeconomic makeup of the school is worth understanding. This wasn't rich kids getting ahead. The, often, the Asian American populations in those schools were were um, first generation kids or immigrant kids who are coming from homes where English was not the first language, often kids coming, you know, the the poverty rate of those schools was higher than surrounding schools. So this was not, and of course there were not kids who were not in poverty in those schools too. It wasn't an exclusively um, below the poverty line, you know, group of people. There's a great diversity um, in the schools Um, But we saw just recently at um, there was a court decision in the Thomas Jefferson School that said that their program to um, make the school more diverse, meaning decrease the number of Asians and increase the number of black and Hispanic students was unconstitutional. The Mm. parents of that school of, of the Thomas Jefferson High School sued um, to change the, to, to revert back to their older admissions, to their merit-based admission standards. And basically we just saw, as we got involved in that fight in New York, we realized at a certain point that parents all over were having the same fight. Um, And for me, it's also very much an issue of public school versus private school, right? If private school kids in New York City, which, you know, it's a very wealthy city. There are some of the finest private schools in the country or in New York City. If private school kids can have um, advanced math programs and learn at accelerated paces, like, why can't we have great public school, (laughs) high school programs, too? Why can't we have an advanced calculus class? in a public high school. And the only way you can do that is if you group together kids who are prepared to do that level of work. And in New York City, because we have so many failing schools and so many um, students that we have failed to teach to grade level, if you go to a lottery system, which is what the pro-equity crowd wanted, specifically for the purposes of engineering classes by race, Um, you wind up with kids that are at such a wide range of ability that you can't teach to the highest tier of ability because you just don't have enough kids in a, in a a lottery based class that can do that level of work. You need to team kids by ability. It's, it's no different than what we do on sports field. If you say like, we're going to have, we're going to, we're not going to do tryouts to be on the soccer team or the football team or the tennis team. We're just going to do it by lottery. And the kid who's le- who swings the racket and misses every time is going to be our, you know, <laughs> is going to be our, our star tennis player. It doesn't make sense. But that kid may be brilliant at something else. Like you have to help kids find what they're good at. And we don't tend to question that so much when it comes to arts excellence or sports excellence. And it's become a weird um issue with academic excellence, and it shouldn't be, we should certainly create spaces for kids to for young people to achieve their academic excellence.
0: yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania too. Um, I'm from Erie, and i there is something to me that is just so fascinating about this entire subject matter because I went to public schools and there was a just understood level of ambition. In America at that time, when I was growing up, that you aspired to get into the honors program and you had to work for it. It was something, it was an honor to be in that. Um, It was something that was encouraged by everyone in the community. And then it seems like something has changed in the last five years or so. And I'm wondering for you, who I'm sure has thought quite a bit about this, why now? Why are these ideas? percolating to the level that they are where you have a you know committed group of people who are advocating for the equity policies you just outlined
1: yeah you know I know I think it goes back way further than five years um, in terms of the ideas being out there that inform this conversation that's reached a sort of pitched battle in the last few years um, it's just sort of come to a head now, right? In a lot of, and in these school battles that we've seen in different cities um, it's, it's reached this sort of fevered pitch now. Um, It is really strange and I don't have a brilliant answer for why it is happening right now, because it's also sort of strange. If you think about it, that right at the moment where like, some of our great successes as a society in terms of being more tolerant, right? Like we have gay marriage now we've had our first black president, right? Like I grew up in the seventies and eighties and like those things weren't a given, you know, if you had said to my parents in the 1970s, like we're going to have a black president named Barack Hussein Obama and gay people are going to get married and have their weddings and splashy New York times editorials. And people aren't going to blink an eye about certain like, Not everyone would have been convinced (laughs) that that wasn't a given, and it's a credit to America. It's a credit to our like long march towards being more tolerant and more accepting and and truly diverse. And right as we're reaping some of the great what I see as benefits of of being a diverse and tolerant society, we have. a chorus of people screaming their heads off about how awful America is and how intolerant we are and how deeply racist we are. And it's like, um, you feel like saying, wait, what country are you living in? (laughs) Because I'm living in a pretty wonderful country, not a perfect country. um, And not like we don't have room for improvement. We all do individually and we do as a nation, but like, let's take a deep breath and realize how amazing this country is, which is also why, by the way, So many people from other parts of the world want to come and live here, including all these immigrants who are striving and working hard to be successful in a public school system, to be academically successful, to live that great American dream. And I'm pretty horrified when I see people denigrate that.
0: Yeah. You know, I think it's also just important to note that for a lot of these kids who test into a school like Stuyvesant, this is their shot. This is their opportunity to to move from the you know, working class to the white collar class in one move. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my understanding about the the idea of the SAT and tests like that in the first place were largely implemented for a merit based society to m- more clearly advocate for a society that wasn't based on superficial characteristics, but really was a a merit based civilization. You know, this conversation so far has been largely theoretical and about ideas and and contradictory ideas, but it gets personal with you. And I'd love to have you speak about that transition point when you went from disagreeing with some people who were advocating for these equity policies to then speaking about those objections yourself personally, and then what happened to you. Um, you can take as much time as you'd like to tell that story, but When did things actually begin to affect you personally with your job?
1: Um, well, what in this, I'll give you the really short version up, up front, and then I'll
0: just
1: fill in the details. Um, I was the president of my school board and I testified at a city council hearing and talked about some of these changes that were being proposed to get rid of merit-based admissions in New York city schools. Um, Nicole Hannah Jones, who was a, um, New York times reporter and who wrote the 1619 project was, you know, covering the education beat in in, for quite a while at the New York times. She heard me testify and she invited me to, um, uh to an interview and she interviewed me and we spoke and then and there was um you know clips of that interview wound up on uh there was a a news program that the New York Times produced at the and it was about the 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 then chancellor in the New York City schools and these proposals to get rid of merit-based um admissions programs. And um she and I then had some exchanges on Twitter and um you know, there was this this assert, I said, I I don't want to misquote myself, but I said something to the extent of that you have to listen to people, even if, and this is what I had actually said about about the chancellor when I testified, that even if you think someone is racist, you know, you have to listen to people who are stakeholders in the same system. And so public school parents, um, you know, there are Republicans and Democrats. There are people who think Donald Trump is evil spawn and people who voted for him. And there are you know, people you're not required to come into as a public school parent. There's no litmus test of ideas before you become a parent in the public school system. People with very different ideas send their kids to public schools. And I tried to as clearly as I could express the fact that you have to be able to sit down and have conversations with people that you may really disagree with. And, and then in the subsequent two, Twitter exchanges I had with her, she I referred to these schools that we were just talking about in New York City as um, majority POC, um, people of color. And she called that disingenuous because they were um, because those schools are largely Asian American. And a lot of people um, on Twitter complained about that and complained that she was... Um, Sort of denigrating Asians and saying they weren't people of color and that you know and I wrote an op-ed so at any rate I wrote an op-ed to try to present my point of view I mean it wasn't particularly long and it wasn't I didn't think particularly controversial but in a way the that twitter exchange illustrated the point I was making which is a lot of asian americans were offended by her words they thought yeah. it was racist of her to dis, to dismiss the idea of those schools being majority people of color because they were Asian, Um, and you know, it's like, she's a public school parent, or at least she was at the time of that interview. She had a kid in public school, so some people thought it was racist of her to be dismissive of Asian Americans, but she's still a public school parent. She still gets to come and present her points of view, just like I'm a public school parent, and I get to come and present my point of views. We don't have to agree with each other on everything to be able to sit down, and more particularly, what I was writing about is we had shared goals, making sure that our schools are truly integrated and have great high quality academics was something that I think we actually completely agreed on. So instead of calling each other racist all the time, why don't we just accept the fact that we won't agree on all of of the methods of how to get to what is in essence a shared goal, great high quality public schools that are truly diverse. Some people think we have to get rid of hard tests and merit-based admissions. I disagree, but we can still recognize all of our shared goals and still recognize that we have, um, a lot of things we could work towards together. At least that was my pitch. And that was my point of view. Um, my employer at the time, the Legal Aid Society, um, was deeply offended by what I wrote and they, um, you know i don't want to put words in their mouth that they were offended or not they wrote basically a screed against me condemning my words and um imposing um sort of a race-based litmus test for what you're allowed to say right it was basically as a white woman i didn't have the right to say the things that i was saying and um and they said rather specifically that i couldn't do my job because of the thoughts that i had um, and you know, uh, I don't want to go into too much detail because we're in court, (laughs) but, um, that's not okay for any employer, not for my employer to have done in the way that they did or for any employer to do to Americans. We really do have, it doesn't matter the color of your skin for you to have ideas that are different from your boss or your employer. I have every right to share as, um, my, Points of view. I was writing as a public school parent. I wrote a 600 word op ed in a newspaper mm-hmm. and I shared my point of view as
0: a parent. Um,
1: and, you know, as an American woman who's free to have the ideas and thoughts that I have.
0: My understanding is that it was really after the publication of the New York Post article that you wrote that shit really hit the fan. For you. <laughs> Basically, York, yes. <laughs> I, I want to read something from Barry Weiss's article. Um, to to I, I thought she framed this very well, and there there's some just information in here that I think might be useful to share with people who are listening to this. This is related to the op-ed in the New York Post. This is from her article on July 23rd, 2020. Marin published an op-ed in the New York Post under the headline "Racial Obsessions Make It Impossible for New York City Schools to Treat Parents, Kids as People." Here's how it opened. And these are, this is from you, Hmm? uh, I presume. So correct me if I'm wrong about any of this. I'm a mom, a public defender, an elected public school council member, and a city council candidate. But at a city, at a city department of education, anti-bias training, I was instructed to refer to myself as a quote, white woman, as if my whole life reduces to my race. Those who oppose this ideology are shunned and humiliated, even as it does nothing to actually improve our broken schools. Though facing severe budget cuts, the DOE has spent more than $6 million for the training, which defines qualities such as, quote, worship of the written word, individualism, and objectivity as white supremacy culture. She says after that, this is Barry now, that's that's when things at work blew up. Three days after she published the piece, the Black Attorneys of the Legal Aid Caucus put out a lengthy, a lengthy statement saying Maude Maron has no business having a career in public defense and we're ashamed that she has worked, that she works for the Legal Aid Society. It declared Maude is a racist and op- openly so and offered no evidence to back up that charge. It said that this veteran public defender was a prominent opponent of equality and a classic example of what 21st century racism looks like. I don't know if you've heard that. In and it a while. went
1: on and on and on. Yes, I haven't actually heard it for a while. It sort of takes the breath away.
0: Hearing that now, I know this happened a couple of years ago now, but um what are your thoughts in receiving that kind of feedback from people who are were your coworkers? workers This is an organization that is designed to help largely black and brown, poor people that you worked for, for many, many, many years. What do you make of that?
1: I mean, at the time it was so hurtful and so painful and so awful. Um, I have some perspective now and oddly enough, I think many people have more perspective now. I think um, being accused of racism is a is a miserable thing to go through, particularly when it's <laughs> there's really literally no there there. Um, but I think enough people, maybe not everybody, but enough people now have seen laughably absurd accusations of racism. Like, oh, I like pink. You like purple. <laughs> You're a racist. I mean, it's like people are accused of racism at the drop of a hat these days. And, um, you know, at the time that this was going on, it was like people were talking about cancel culture and is it real and is it not real? And, and you know, so people can there are some people who might tell you cancel culture is not real, but like there's no denying that people have had their careers ruined and have been chased out of workplaces. I mean, I've certainly lived it, but other people have, too, over absurd allegations. And this This is a really clear cut case of, um, you know, of people weaponizing that accusation because they disagree with you about something. And in this case, it was something actually fairly, um, you know, I think reasonable people can disagree over the subject. Like I think merit-based admissions in public schools has real value and it has particular value to low income, low socioeconomic status kids. I think it's also helpful and valuable to my kids, to middle-class kids, but but I think it has real value. Smart, reasonable, good-hearted people could disagree with me and have a, an insane conversation about that and accusing people of being vile human beings because they have a different opinion than you do about how to fix schools that need fixing is just not a rational and it's certainly not a compassionate or kind way to respond to anyone, you know, certainly not your coworker.
0: And what happened to you right after you, this assault was launched on you by your former coworkers, you know, you no longer work there. What proceeded in the coming months after after those statements were made about you, those allegations were made about you, did you willingly leave? Did you feel like you were forced out? What happened to your job specifically at the Legal Aid Society?
1: I mean, at the time I was running for office and so I wasn't in the job day to day. But I mean, here's the thing. Um, I don't see how anyone, <laughs> not only that was the, that was a caucus of attorneys within my union. It's a unionized office. Um that tweeted that statement. But my bosses, the legal aid leadership, retweeted that statement, essentially endorsed that statement. And then they wrote their own statement, which was equally vicious and insane. Um, uh, You know, I don't see how anybody can actually be expected to work in an office where, um, where those things were said about you and rather explicitly the claims that I can't do my job um, because of who I am and what I think and what I said were made in writing and published by my employer. So, um, you know, there's something called constructive termination in the law. Like they don't have to do the, the Donald Trump, you're fired <laughs> to fire you, but they can e- essentially, fi- you know, effectively fire you by running you out of the office in the way that they ran me out of the office.
0: Yeah. I'm going to read one other quote from that article. Um, and, and this is a little bit long, later in the article itself. And this is a quote I think directly from you. If you had asked if you had asked me when I became a mom what I thought were the pressing concerns my kids would face, I probably would have said climate change maybe ending the Iraq war. I am so shocked that the worry that that what I worry about now is creeping totalitarianism in America. You've spoken to this already in this conversation that and this is one of my favorite quotes that reasonable people can disagree. You know, we're all doing our best to try to figure out what in the hell is going on in the world. And part of living an educated, free life, in my mind, is having an open mind, being able to disagree with people, changing your mind when you think it's appropriate, and not forcing other people to believe everything that you do. Um, To me, that is the essence of illiberalism. We're having this conversation in early 2020, and I know what's happened to you has gone on in the last two or three years, specific to this issue. How do you see things now related to the creeping totalitarianism that you so worried about? You know, I think for most people who don't know someone like you, the idea that cancel culture is a myth and doesn't exist, it's. It, it's easier to just believe something like that because you don't want to think something like this is actually happening. Um, how do you think things have changed? You know, we've had elections the in the past couple of years. I, I do think that because just personally, people like you have refused to shut up um, and to uh, have had the guts to actually sp- speak their mind um it does seem like things from my perspective are changing a little bit but i'd love to hear your analysis analysis of that from from your perspective
1: you know i guess i would say it's not um you know we're not all moving in the same timeline at <laughs> the same bit so i think there are some people many people who read about my story or read about similar stories and realize like, you know, Houston, we have a problem. This is not how you run a free society. It's not good for democracy. It's not good for individuals. Um, But there are other people who, like you said, never met anybody who got canceled from a job. Don't think like I'm American. I say what I want. What's the problem? And they just haven't experienced it or, um, or how to impact their lives or their friends' lives. So they're not really convinced that this is, you know, an issue or a problem in society. Um, And there are other people who are much more tuned into what's going on. I mean, I I wrote about this recently, but it's like what, what gets labeled as misinformation online these days is not misinformation. It's unpopular opinions. You know, remember for the first year of COVID, we couldn't mention the lab leak theory. Well, I don't know where COVID started. I don't have the the skills or the knowledge to um, figure out whether this virus came from a lab or whether it came from an animal, as we were told, you know, in the beginning. Um, But I've read lots of credible, smart, interesting analyses from other people. And I think, whether they're right or wrong, we have we certainly should be able to read and yeah. assess for ourselves what other people think about that. And I don't want to live in a society where my government says, we don't like that theory, so we're going to call it misinformation and kick it off of the public square of information. Because I want all the ideas, the good ones and the bad ones, to be in the public square so we can assess for ourselves what makes sense and what we think.
0: Yeah. I uh, a few weeks ago, I talked to John McWhorter about the a lot of these topics, and you know his book. I think, along with stories like yours and your your willingness to speak openly about what happened to you, I think is part of the pushback against this creeping totalitarianism, which I think was very aptly put. And his term that he uses for people who are adamant about pushing for equity and more than that are fully willing to discredit someone and ruin their reputation and try to get them fired from their job, essentially ruin their life with no compunction as the elect. That's the term he uses for people who have this. And there is something fundamentalist about this that reminds me of religion. Um, And part part of what I have wondered in the last you know 10 or 15 years as the country has become less religious and it is in that vacuum especially for leftist types and i certainly was one of those uh at one point in my life i still consider myself a democrat um but they that that void that is filled by uncertainty and a need for a team and tribalism it mm-hmm. seems like this is one of those areas that has filled that void for a lot of people, you know, I, I know in the article that Barry Barry wrote about you, you were mentioning uh, the book White Fragility, and these are books that are very popular. Um, I'm wondering what you think about that, you know, in, in terms of just from a more like an anthropological perspective, how you explain this modern phenomenon of people that have such certainty about their views, and they're so certain about it that they are totally. Fine with ruining somebody's life in its name, how do you think I about think,
1: that? I think John mcWhorter was is his analysis is really spot on when it comes to the religious fervor of that um the 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 woke <laughs> racists right of people who um, want to sort of reify race in this new in a way that they think is defeating racism but really for the rest of us looks like they're reinvigorating racism. You know, in New York City, we have, um, you know, in New York City, we have, um, and not just New York City, I've seen it, I've seen it all over the place, but this, uh, these concepts that very much fall in line with white fragility called affinity groups, where they're dividing you know, the teachers in one of my kids' schools were divided by race to have these race-oriented discussions. And they've divided kids as young as middle schoolers by race. And it's gross and it's wrong. And I can't be convinced otherwise. I just don't think in a diverse, beautiful, thriving, you know, city like New York City, that any good comes of um, dividing kids during the day for instruction by race. Now, mind you, I went to a woman's college. Mm-hmm. I think if people want, if you want to go to a Jewish organization or a, an African-American organization or a Latino organization or an Asian-American organization, because you're celebrating shared history or common history, you know, fine. If you want to go to a a Bible group, that's not divided by, by race or gender, or, or, um, you know, you're, you're, you can go to groups that are, where you're have like interests or where you're celebrating a shared heritage. There's nothing wrong with that if you're doing it voluntarily. But kids in a public school system should not be divided by race. And it is a um, it has complete religious fervor to it. The the kindy defined anti-racism that has really infiltrated the public school system. I mean, massively infiltrated the public school system. And I think it's wrong. And I just think that we have to be my, you know, if someone, if you start a private school that says we're going to put all the white kids in, you know, room A on Tuesdays and all the black kids in room B, okay, well, anyone who wants to sign up for that and pay good money for it, you know, go for it. I wouldn't send my kids there. But public schools have to be for the public. And it's a different Beast, right? Yeah. Like we have to be able to um, live up to our ideals in our public school system, and the religious fervor of white fragility style curriculum and thinking really betrays basic American principles and values in a way that I think we need to resist and reject.
0: Yeah, and and so much of what you've already talked about, you know, these sound like Fox News talking points. You know, that that you that yeah, you know, these are I'm just thinking about people who I know who politically have agreed with me and kind of been on my side of voting in my lifetime. I don't know that they would really believe a lot of what you're saying. They 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 would have a hard time believing that this actually is happening. And I think part of just selfishly one of the reasons why I think you're so important is because you are within the tent historically of my own party too. I consider myself far less Identified with a party than I ever have in my life, um, and I, I kind of increasingly hope more and more people feel that way as well. But for for those people who don't have kids in school who haven't heard about these stories about children being separated um, that you just mentioned, what are some of those details? You know what what really is happening at some schools in the country related to what I view as just blatant racism going on with children what do you know about that what what has happened
1: i mean i know look the the example i just gave you of a middle school is i know about because friends of mine their kids go to those schools right yeah. like that's something where i've had parents call me and say i'm so distressed at what they've assigned my daughter to read in her you know 7th grade class and this is what they're doing and this is what they're discussing i'm so upset about what just happened in my son's um you know high school class and i'm fielding those phone calls from people that I know from people that I don't know who are reaching out to me because they know who I am. So like, I see it going on and I see what's going on in my own kid's school. And I've set up meetings with my kid's principal to talk about things that I find troubling in my own kid's school. Um, but you can also read about it. It's out there. It's not, there's a a fantastic organization called Parents Defending Education, uh, located in Virginia, that's done a really fantastic job collecting some of this information. Um, And it's out there. At this point, it's so well documented that people who choose to disbelieve it um, are just being willfully blind to what's going on. And, you know, um, it's funny you say Fox News talking point, because it's like, you really shut down all conversation yeah. when you not you but you know <laughs> like someone who does it yeah. when 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 you essentially you're saying think like i think or else i'm going to label you as a bad guy i'm going to yeah. label you as the other as the heretic as the you know as, as the wrong think person um and part of, you know, part of me being a Democrat and part of me being of the left for as many years as I have been is because for me, that was a place where you where classic liberalism thrived, where enlightenment values and testing out ideas and being thoughtful and really trying to use you know, critical thinking to come up with the best solutions for our most pressing problems. That's where I thought that fervor and energy was best represented. And the truth is politically, my values haven't really changed at all. It's, but the ground has shifted beneath my feet rather extraordinarily. And I know I'm not alone because I hear it from so many other people.
0: Yeah. I I feel exactly the same way. Um, You know, when I was a kid, the democratic party was the party of, of free speech.
1: Yes, of course. Uh, and the
0: and the tent that all the weirdos could be in who had <laughs> different different ideas. And um you know, specific to education, how do you think we get out of this? You know, I, I know you are running for office yourself, and mm-hmm. I want to give you time to talk about why you want to do that and what you think how you think you can help the situation, but how do you assess the current state of education in terms of how we might be able to work our way out of this? Are you optimistic that that's even possible at this point? I I would love to get your thoughts on that.
1: Well, I'll say there's two things. One, I I think there's a very robust parent activist element in New York City, other cities as well. And we've actually connected with parents from other cities, we New Yorkers. Um, That is hugely important. It's also um, gratifying. <laughs> I love working with the parents that I work with. I had a meeting this morning with the group of parents, um, and I think the work that we do as parents, and that I see other groups throughout the city doing as parents, is crucial and vital to insisting on the kind of education we want our kids to have. We are the stakeholders. We are the parents whose kids are in these schools day in and day out, and we have to keep doing what we're doing and fighting. And some of that is political electing the people who, um, who share our values and who will promote the kind of education we want to see and voting out and getting rid of the people who have betrayed those values. Um, There's that. But then I also think there's a role at this point for the kids to play. Like kids know when they're being lied to. Right. And there's so many kids who have basically come up in the woke theater of it all where, you know, they have when you're being forced to pretend that your world is one of racial oppression where white people are just oppressing the heck out of all the non-white people, but yet you're actually a diverse group of kids who like are friends and you hang out together and you're, and you know, it's nonsense. And you can see with your own eyes that the, that the richest kid in your class may not be the white kid and that the smartest kid in your class, you know, may not be the Asian kid or that, that like that there are true individuals sitting in front of you. And, you know, there are jerks of every color and there are geniuses of every color and there are good people of every color. And so this really facile narrative of black, white oppression and racism, I just think kids are seeing through it. But then again, like I also worry because kids are very young and impressionable and where some of this stuff is being filtered down to like ever younger kids. um, Sometimes they have to kind of, they don't have to, but sometimes I fear what happens is kids do get a little indoctrinated and, um, and, but, but their ability to shake it off is part of the solution, their ability to realize that they're being lied to is part of the solution. And so, um, helping kids realize that, um, everything they're being taught isn't always true (laughs) is part of that. Um, you know, that, that move forward, um, And I'll say this, like, for instance, you said that I'm running for office. So I'm running for office against an, and I'm running in a democratic primary. There's an incumbent who's 76 years old and has been in office for 30 years. So she's trying to embark on her fourth decade in Washington, D.C. There's also young, 20-something, super woke, super lefty challengers out there. And I don't want either. I want me, <laughs> that's yeah, why I'm yeah. running. Or someone who thinks like me. If someone could come along and say, "Don't worry, Mod, I'll fix things," <laughs> <laughs> I'd be okay with that. But I don't. The the one of one of the challengers is a socialist, self declared socialist, who works for Google, making a very pretty penny. You know, working for. A very non-socialist organization. And then, like I said, we have this longtime incumbent. I just don't see how that far left extremist position that I don't think is good for my city or my country or my kids or their school. Um, I don't see that, how that helps families like mine who want a safe city, a safe subway, safe schools who want high quality schools, who want, um, you know, who want to be free from ideology and just have government that's actually working to try to solve solutions. And I certainly don't see how the status quo that got us here is going to suddenly start fixing these problems tomorrow. Right. Um, and so I, I'm, I like how many people are stepping up to run and to challenge the status quo and to, to say like, this is not a contest between the far left and the permanent political class, which is what some people will have you believe. Um, We need new voices and we need fresh voices and we need people who are, for me, I want people who are going to reject this extremist left-wing ideology. You know, New York City is a very blue city. So we most often our elections are decided in the Democratic primary (laughs) and not actually the general election. Um, And I'm not interested in having to choose between a permanent political class that has abandoned families like mine and far left progressive lunacy. Um, And I say that as someone who always considered myself progressive and of the left, but what we've seen of it in New York has been a disaster. Um, And, you know, I want the middle path. I want the smart, sensible, let's focus on solutions and on real people. Um, You know, and in New York City, for me, some of that's not about education. Some of it is about looking at how disastrous lockdowns have been and mandates have been for personal liberty, for our economy, for, you know, everyday working people. I mean, it drives me insane in New York that the healthcare workers that we were applauding for and clapping for last year got kicked out of their jobs this year because we refused to recognize natural immunity and had vaccine mandates that had no give in them. No, um, you know, when I say this as a woman who's vaccinated for everything under the sun. I'm not remotely anti-vax, but that 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 label that that refusal that you and I were just talking about of having um, of, of people having different opinions than you, you may think, "Hey, there's good reason to not recognize natural immunity, and we should all be vaccinated anyway." But if that's your opinion, lay it out for me in a way that makes sense, and that I can listen to what you're saying instead of just labeling anyone who disagrees with you as anti-vax, because that's just ad hominem, and it's not um, a conversation.
0: Yeah, and and to also label that person as as beyond the pale and unworthy right. of of any kind of respect and. You know, we've already spoken about this a little bit during the conversation about why this is happening right now, why people are so apt to castigate people who they disagree with. Um, you know, One thought I had when you were just speaking now is that I think a problem progressives often have is admitting when progress has been made yes. uh, and, and conceding that point and to find other avenues in life that might be worth their energy to pursue. Um, a question I did want to ask you too related to all of these subjects is how large you think the group of people is that is pushing back against what to me sounds like very sensible views that you have you know the people who are animated related to equity the people who were interested in removing you from your job or making it so inhospitable for you that you had to leave are they simply the loudest and the most intolerant people or do they actually in your judgment make up a significant percentage of the population in general. I mean, my personal read on this is that a lot of the reason why this these groups have been allowed to have such power is that people are just scared to confront them. And are, you said this earlier related to, I mean, when I was a kid, if you were called a racist, that was one of the worst things that could ever be leveled against you. And I think especially for a lot of white Americans, um, they've been Trying their entire life to distance, them, distance themselves from anything remotely close to that, uh, that that traditional sense of the word, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that about how large you think the people are in the population that are actually advocating for these totalitarian viewpoints um, well, I'.
1: Mean, I'll ground the answer in a very political answer by saying that I'm very in favor of open primaries. <laughs> Andrew yep. Yang, who ran for mayor in New York, is promoting this concept um, pretty you know, strenuously. Um, and the reason I'd love to see open primaries in New York is I think if we had more people voting in primaries, we would net out more in the middle, more in yep. the moderate positions that you and I seem to share.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but primary voters, and in New York, particularly Democratic primary voters, but this is true of both sides, tend to be extremist. <laughs> and yeah. so what we get sometimes is the people picking our elected leaders are a small portion of a smaller group, right? Yeah. So you have to have the people who are registered to vote, the people who will actually turn out to vote, and the people who can vote in the primary. Um, And so it skews the results. I think the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats, if you're doing a Venn diagram of what they care about, what they're concerned about, what what would actually motivate them to pick an elected official, there's more similarity than not. There are real differences. I'm not trying to be Pollyanna about it. Like there are very real differences, but there's a lot of shared concern and shared interest. And our current system is driving us to these extremes. And then when you're driven to those extremes, when you have an elected government, that's um, like we've had in New York city, that's using the threat of accusations of racism or transphobia or white supremacy or ableism, or, you know, the list gets longer and longer. um, Then people get scared and then they get quiet. And then it's like, you know what? I'm not a culture warrior. I just want to do my job and pay my mortgage and like get take a vacation once a year. <laughs> I'm yep. Like I don't want to fight this fight. So I'm just gonna not say anything as I sit through this diversity training at work because I want to keep my head down and get out of here, you know, with my shirt on.
0: Yeah. Uh this is something um I don't know if you know the name David Daly, but David Daly is um I, I think one of the nation's experts on gerrymandering. And I had him on a couple of weeks ago. And yes. it-, it was I got
1: revel- right out of my previous district and into okay. a new district uh, so for this rate. So. I don't I will, have to I will tell you about that. this, yeah.
0: <laughs> but, but he, you know, uh, to your point, it's essentially the the second order consequence of what has been the result of successful gerrymandering is primaries that are becoming more and more extreme, um, yes. and and um, you know what what the end end result is for that. I know we're getting close to the end of the conversation, and I, I'd love to talk to you about uh, as we wind things down. What you think the path the the sensible path forward is for the country related to these subjects you know we're having this conversation on the 28th of February in 2022 and it's been it's been an, uh, a harrowing week watching the invasion of Ukraine by Russia but i have to say it does seem to have mobilized something in the west related to i think what are the best aspects of our Society that gives me some optimism that we may be on the cusp of reawakening from this slumber um, and taking pride again in principles that are the bedrock of our civilization. The first and foremost, to my mind, being freedom of speech and liberty um, and the ability to disagree with your neighbors. You know, you, you are, I've heard this been written about you in terms of describing you as a, as a political candidate, as a moderate Democrat. And I don't know if you would agree with that assessment, but I, I, I I was thinking when I was just hearing you talk about the 20, 2012 election between Obama and Romney, and it seems like a different time. I mean, those men had significant differences between the two of them, but they had a lot more in common than I think most of us recognized at the time. And I'd love to give you an opportunity to talk about what you think for the Democrats, but more just the country in general, where we can go to have a sense of civic pride and uh, an ability to navigate our way out of this creeping totalitarianism that Mm -hmm. exists. And it's not unique to the left necessarily. I mean, there are dictatorial tendencies on, on both sides of the aisle. Um, but how do you think we navigate those waters to get to a point that, you know, in my judgment, you know, the most amazing country in the history of the world can continue to be that, um, how do you think about that personally?
1: Well, I'd say there's two things. Um, one is I'm with you on how important free speech is like we need to, the next generation needs to know and understand that one of the most scary things that I hear is when, There's this lunatic concept that like, oh, the First Amendment doesn't cover hate speech, which is like not remotely true and also really dangerous. Right. Like this idea that we can, you know, remove people's YouTube channels or remove them because you can call something hate speech. It's really it's quite dangerous. Um, But speaking of YouTube channels and speaking of new media, I actually think the fact that you and I have had a conversation that lasts for an hour is is part of the solution. <laughs> it's not. Um, it's not the whole solution, but the fact that so many Americans are turning off CNN and like legacy media and seeking information elsewhere. And it's a bit chaotic out there because there's a lot of misinformation. You just mentioned Ukraine. I've read you know, this many soldiers died on Snake Island, this many soldiers were captured on Snake Island. It's like you can feel the propaganda coming at you from each way and you don't know what to believe when you're getting those. War is chaotic and you're getting waves of information that um, that you don't know what's trusted. But I don't I don't think, oh, I'll turn on CNN to figure out what's really going on, because I don't trust that it's not that I'm not going to get, you know, more propaganda of some form. So I think creating New media outlets and new ways to disseminate information is super important. Having trusted voices, I'm more likely to read a substack of an investigative journalist that I trust and that I think Mm -hmm. is a credible source to get information. It's not the same as nightly news. I'd love to have a nightly news program that I turned on and thought, like, oh, they're gonna tell it to me straight. But I don't, I tend to seek out voices and whether it's on Substack or whether it's on Twitter or whether it's, you know, um, a podcast that um, that's credible to me. And I think lots of Americans are doing that. And it's both a little scary because it's very fractured and people wind up in their echo chambers and it, but it's also the path forward where people say, I need reliable information and I need thoughtful conversation and information. And so I think that part this, what we're doing now, which is talking to each other and having yeah. intelligent conversation, it is part of the path forward. Um, it, how that shakes out the people who are in the business of media, how that shakes out and how you, you know, as Joe Rogan's platform explodes and MSNBC and CNN shrink, Um, Someone's going to have to come along and figure out how to make a TV program that interests people as much as long form podcasts seem to be interesting people these days. Um, And that's not my job and I'm not going to be the one to do that. (laughs) But someone's going to come along to figure out how to, um, you know, take new media to the next level because people are looking for it right and in a supply and demand society like there's a lot of people demanding better and different alternatives for how they get their information and i think that's part of the solution to keeping america great in all the ways that we are a great and wonderful and amazing nation a nation that people want to come to um and also you know fending off the things that you and i are both worried about
0: yeah yeah a couple more questions before we wrap this up. Um, what, one I would love to ask you is about you know I, I grew up Catholic, and the, for all of its flaws, I think one aspect of Christianity that is worth holding on to is the idea of forgiveness, and there seems to be very little of that available in the public sphere uh, right now to to my mind, and I'd love to know. <laughs> from your perspective, I mean, you have gone through a hell of a lot in the last few years. Um, And I have a ton of admiration just personally for your unwillingness to lie about what you saw in front of you. Um, But it is a fact that you have colleagues that didn't have a problem saying the things they said about you and to um, effectively end your career at that organization as they did. Let's say hypothetically in a month, a year, many years from now, they watch a conversation like this, they learn more about you, they, they read some criticisms of books like White Fragility, and they realize that they were wrong. Um, what would you like them to know? What would you like to say to people like that um, who have caused an enormous amount of suffering for you and your family, I'm sure? What kind of message do you think you would like to convey to them? And and maybe more specifically to people in the country who've been through something like this, what do you think is the right long-term response to an event like that and approaching people who who canceled you and really disrupted your life in the way that they did?
1: Um, That's such a great and interesting question. And nobody has asked me that before. (laughs) So um, that's a really interesting um, question. Um, you know, there's been some real viciousness directed towards me and what I think I have done for the most part. Um, obviously I have a lawsuit going on and that requires, you know, being very functional and finding an attorney and approving, you know, complaints and that sort of thing. Um, but other than doing that, which, you know, I'm somewhat well-suited to doing being an attorney myself, but, um, other than that, I have, for the most part, just kind of compartmentalized, (laughs) like, you know, it's like, this is this awful thing that happened. I'm putting it over here. I'm shutting the door and I'm going on with my life. And I, I have, I don't tend to think too much about, um, about the people who were so vicious. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not that invested in whether or not they realize that, um, that what they did was, was vicious and cruel. Like they have their own path to walk and, 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 you know, they may continue to think exactly what they thought when they wrote those vicious words for the rest of their life, or they may change their mind. They may come around, they may think differently. Um, But that's their path to walk. And it's not really, um, you know, it's not one that I'm going to invest a lot of time
0: in. Yeah. Last question I want to ask you, and I think you're right about this new media. And to me, it's like the Cambrian expo- explosion and evolution, where y- you know what is now available to people in terms of learning is like nothing else that has ever existed before. And there's obviously a massive appetite for, you know, I think conversations like this one. I mean, I'm I'm a fan. This is what got me into this work in the first place because I just I feel like it really opened up my mind, podcasting and and YouTube podcasting in general, and I I have a, a deep gratitude for living in this time because I do think it broke me out of some of my own ideologies, um, that I think is is just helpful for any human being who wants to live rationally and morally. Um, and all, last thing I'd I'd like to to know from you is who you trust, right? I mean, for people who are living in this chaotic information age and they're they're looking for individuals and uh, media organizations to to look to to trust to try to make sense of the world with as much honesty and accuracy as they can who in your judgment is doing the best job in that in that department right now who you who you trust and you would seek out for information
1: um Well, I'll tell you off the bat, I think Barry Weiss (laughs) does a particularly amazing job and not only her Substack and her podcast, but it just, um, you know, she's been hiring additional writers and bringing in new voices. And I, it's invaluable to, to gathering information and understanding what's going on in the world. I'm a huge fan of Matt Taibbi Mm. is, um, you mentioned people who critique white fragility. If you Oh, I read it. Yeah. His take on white fragility, you should, because it's really it's um it's a great analysis, but it's also just um will make you laugh (laughs) because he really doesn't pull his punches on that one. Um, I also read Glenn Greenwald a lot. I think his commitment to free speech and to holding the powerful accountable has been really um sort of consistent. Um, and he's, you know, someone who seems to piss off everyone, which is a mark of a truth teller. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> that's something that I think is a good thing in someone. Um, and, uh, you know, I read also recently Bacha Ungar Sargan's book, Bad News, speaking of new media and where we go from what she, she sort of chronicles how the mainstream newspapers that we've relied on traditionally how they started and how they got where they are and where where they're going um, through a real populist lens. And I, um, you know, I really loved her book. Um, I listened to John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry a lot because I think they are um, just morally really clear-sighted and fun and thoughtful to listen to. So there's a lot of voices out there that I think are worth listening to.
0: Yeah. One of my favorite quotes that I've gotten out of doing this podcasting work in the last year was um, from a guy named Jonathan Zimmerman, who had written a book. He's a professor at Penn, and he had written a book about free speech. I think the title of the book is Why Free Speech Matters. And he, the quote that I remember most from that conversation is a line that, if I remember correctly, his name was Leonard Hand, gave at an immigration ceremony in 1944 at Central Park. And it was like a mass swearing in of thousands of Americans in the middle of World War II. And the quote that he said in his speech addressing these new Americans was, the spirit of liberty is that which is not so sure that it is correct. And I've thought about that quote a lot. We all want to believe we know the truth, and I think we should all aspire to try to get the truth. Um, But it is always a noble endeavor in every generation in my mind to fight against the forces and propensities for totalitarianism. And I hope to God, we are not anywhere close to that actually taking over the country. Um, And I've already said this to you before, but I I have such admiration and respect for people who take that on at high cost. And um, you have done that, which is a big reason why I've wanted to talk to you for so long. So um, it's an honor to be able to, to talk to you about all this because I think these conversations really matter, and I think your example is ex- especially important um, in this time. So, um, thank you so much for doing this and, and, and having it's been the conversation.
1: Pleasure to talk to you, and um, and I appreciate the questions. It's always great when someone asks you a question that you haven't had before, <laughs> or that makes you think about something in a new way. Because, um, like you said, it's where you know, it's 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 what makes it this podcasting format really interesting and enjoyable. And so thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. Um, I wish you wish you all the best. And um, thanks again for doing this. It was great to meet you, Maude.
1: Thanks so much, Dan.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.